Understandably, amid the fallout of COVID-19, the retail industry has been abuzz with speculation about the future. One question in particular seems to surface repeatedly. While 2019 became the year of experiential retail, will the pandemic of 2020 mark its downfall? Will a newly minted generation of germophobic, socially distanced consumers put the kibosh on touchy-feely retail? Will the free-flowing capital that experiential retailers benefited from seek more conventional and transactionally-based refuge amid new levels of uncertainty? I'm Doug Stevens, and in Episode 4 of Retail Reborn, the Business of Fashion's new podcast series on redesigning the retail industry presented by Brookfield Properties, I speak with three retail leaders who share their unique perspectives from the front lines of the experiential retail movement. The pre-pandemic world of retail seems almost a distant memory now. Today, amidst the massive shift to online shopping and deficiency-based retail, many in the industry are questioning the health of a trend that only several short months ago was the darling of the industry and being hailed as the key to its reinvention. Experiential retail, once a potential panacea for the ills of an industry, is now sidelined. Meanwhile, we hear reports of Amazon aiming to turn physical stores into local mini-logistics centers, and retailers far and wide are scrambling to remain afloat in a churning post-pandemic sea of disruption. It all got me thinking. What is experiential retail anyway? Did the industry ever really get it? And what truly differentiates it from all other forms of retail? And finally, will history list the pandemic as experiential retail's cause of death or the powerful elixir that made it stronger and more valuable than ever before? A good place to start, it seemed to me, was by talking to three pioneers in the space. So neighborhood goods, we describe it as being a new type of department store of sorts. Brands pay us a, typically pay us a fee to be in the store, and then we also take a percentage of those sales. Matt Alexander is the co-founder of Neighborhood Goods. I met Matt several years ago prior to the opening of the company's first location in Plano, Texas. Neighborhood Goods now operates three stores, including new locations in both Austin and New York City. In some cases, we just take a percentage. In some cases, we just take a fee. Um, but generally, what has always been our guiding sort of philosophy is that we want to offer economics to our brands that A, make the most sense for them, and B, uh, would be something more profitable for them and more meaningful than, for them than wholesale. Neighborhood Goods sees itself as a tightly edited and revolving curation of unique brands, products, and experiences brought together in one place, offering its brand partners flexible engagement options. Neighborhood Goods provides a spatial platform in high-visibility markets and online for what are often digitally native brands. The space provides a means of customer acquisition, brand awareness, product testing, and market intelligence on a short or longer-term basis, depending on a brand's needs. It also provides partnering brands with key analytic data to feed their understanding of a given market or consumer response to product. 
In addition, the company also receives a percentage of the proceeds from product sales, as well as revenue from live event ticketing. When COVID-19 hit, Matt had just opened his Chelsea Market store in Manhattan. I was interested to get his take on the whole idea of what experiential retail really means today and how viable it is for the future. To begin with, I was interested in how he's seen his own business evolve. I would say that we sort of think of ourselves a little bit more as a retailer, um, but you could also look at us as a marketing platform. Um, you could look at us as a real estate company. Um, you could look at us as a media company. Wait, no selfie walls? No incessant focus on Gen Z shoppers? No virtual reality? Nope. Matt's all business. Which leads me to wonder if the idea of experiential retail has been conflated with creating not-for-profit novelty spaces and expensive adult playgrounds. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a core misunderstanding. I think, you know, there's lowercase e experience or experiential and there's capital E experience or experiential. And for us, we've always been very much focused on the lowercase version, which is something memorable and something positive where you treat people with dignity and integrity, right? Where you go into the store, you're not being haunted until you purchase something. Um, if you want to go in and shop online to have it shipped to you, that that can be embraced rather than frowned upon. That the way you sort of compensate your employees accounts for that sort of behavioral type. And the way you think about the general format of the store can treat your brands well as well. And so that's, it's not sort of experience um, in the sense that, you know, there's ball pits or trampolines or slides or whatever. Um, it's something that's very perennial and very, again, traditional, uh, where it's very much focused on, um, you know, these, these core aspects of uh, human nature, where if you can try to treat people well and give them a good experience and something memorable, they will become a powerful marketing engine for you where they want to talk to people about it. They will send people your way. None of this, according to Alexander, is new. In fact, he says it harkens back to the way retail used to be. And I think that is, you know, that's retail as it was 100 years ago. You know, it's hardly new uh, from us at all. It's really just that I think over the past two decades or three decades or four decades, whatever it is, you know, Retailers had sort of steadily lost track of the value of that merchant aspect beyond just sort of saying, you know, we sell products, but it became increasingly sort of um, just sort of selling the same thing at every store. And it doesn't really foster any reason for you to actually go or to even really think about having a positive experience and how to treat people well and whether or not the basis of how you even pay your own employees is whether that's fair or not. And and so we just came to the table with this general sort of thought that, you know, uh, retail as it was, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, had plenty of redemptive qualities. If you could marry that with the acknowledgement that, you know, a digital channel is of fundamental importance and that, you know, how you think about this strategy and how you think about your concept as it plays in that sort of environment where you can allow the consumer to ostensibly dictate their own terms as to how they interact with you, um, that was just the basis for it. What is unique is the flexibility with which Neighborhood Goods regards its revenue channels, partnering with brands in a variety of ways depending on their needs and objectives. So for some, it's very much 
oh, hey, we've been thinking about a physical retail strategy. Um, we want to sort of open up in your Chelsea location so we can understand what that traffic and sort of transactional dynamic might look like and do the same thing in Plano to understand a more suburban audience as well. For others, they come to us and say, well, we want to test X, Y, and Z new product before we launch them on our own channels so we can understand what this may look like. And it may take the form of a collaboration with us, whatever it is. Others may come to us and say, you know, we don't want to sell with you, but we'd really like to try to acquire customers and see what that looks like um, from a marketing perspective. And so as soon as those conversations kick in, the first thing that happens once we've sort of gotten a good handle on what it is they want to do, we're really giving them a set of opinions as to where they should go. Because each of our locations has been picked very specifically and will continue to be picked very specifically um, to offer a different feature set to befit those different goals. This multimodal view of revenue provides a level of fluidness that other straight wholesale-to-retail models can't offer, which may be precisely why Alexander maintains his phone has been ringing with brands that are defecting from wholesale relationships with traditional department stores and are now instead seeking a bridge to -to direct-to-consumer sales. Um, Our relationship is something much more sort of collaborative. Um, It's a relationship, um, and that can have positives and negatives to it. But the end result is that we're both collectively sort of motivated for success. Um, Wholesale, not so much, not always. Um, I think the other byproduct of wholesale is that it tends to sort of really sort of fall into whatever cadence of ordering you have to fall into. And in our industry, more often than not, it's seasonal. And I think seasonal cycles are done. As Alexander is speaking, I'm hearing the faint voices of critics saying, well, this all sounds fine, but what about making money? It's a valid point. At the end of the day, experiences have to add up to revenue, right? I think when people talk about building you know, an experiential retail concept, it's all well and good, but the, the follow-up question has to be, you know, what creates something enduring there in terms of both the business model, but also the relationship with the consumer, how you sort of monetize it and otherwise. And that's not to say it can't be done. We've seen incredibly thoughtful approaches to it. My favorite being uh, Ben Kaufman and Camp in New York and elsewhere now, um, and how they approached an experiential concept and deployed it towards kids. Yeah. I mean, it's, Again, it's a very traditional idea of retail, right? Where it's very much focused on the relationship is very much focused on the story. I found this idea of consumers, retailers, and brands building commercial relationships, not merely on the back of transactions, but on stories to be an interesting idea. One that prompted me to reach out to someone who's become synonymous with stories. Well, it's funny because I don't know that I thought I was getting into experiential retail, right? Like... I don't even know, we'd have to do some digging. I don't even know when that term started being used. It definitely wasn't a term being used in 2011 because everyone looked at me like I had 50 heads when I shared the idea of story. So I definitely don't think I was like, I'm going to start an experiential retail concept because it wasn't even in people's nomenclature. That's Rachel Schechtman. In 2011, Rachel founded Story, a Manhattan-based retail space that many point to as an important catalyst for the experiential retail movement of today. 
Story was a retail store that behaved like a magazine, changing completely every four to six weeks and incorporating a range of in-store and community events. Brands, including Fortune 500 companies, partnered with Story to promote their products. Some, including Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola, paying anywhere between four and $800,000 to become part of a story. In 2018, I was asked to come to New York to present the case for why Story's business model should be considered to Macy's board. Several months later, Macy's acquired Story. I asked Sheckman, as a pioneer of the movement, did experiential retail play out in the broader industry the way she'd envisioned? I think for me, what the hypothesis was, and I, I do feel like it turned out, right, there were two main things that informed um, the creation of story, which I, I think are as true, if not more now than ever before, you know, and it was both like the retail side and the media side and kind of thinking through, you know, no one had really explored, you know, changing up the model or combining different industries in this way with retail. And so um, for me, the, the two things that informed it that, that did turn out was kind of the hypothesis of if we're the same people who live online, who live offline, why aren't we, why aren't we using successful D2C, online, digital businesses, whatever you want to call it, as indicators of offline opportunities. So I kind of thought if we're the same people who live in a physical world, who live in a digital world, why don't we just take those same principles and behaviors that inform us on digital platforms and bring them to life in a physical world? And then kind of, you know, the second observation that was more on the on the media side of things was you know, I don't, I should have this at the tip of my tongue. I don't know the current statistic. It's obviously different pre-COVID of how many people go through a Starbucks every week, but it's hundreds of millions of people. And no one was really, so I just kind of was like, why is no one looking at, at physical retail as a customer acquisition opportunity and monetizing it as such? So both of those things, you know, knock on wood, did pan out. And it turned out that those, those elements of content, of community, of commerce that came to life through, you know, all these different new digital platforms people were starving for in the real world, turns out that's what experiential, you know, experiential, I guess, is part of that. It's true. More retailers began exploring experiential retail, but the problem was that very few were actually measuring its impact. Many regarded experiential retail as a profitability black hole. Now a word from our sponsor, Brookfield Properties' Meredith Darnall, Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence and Strategy, who shares retail insights from the real estate perspective. What retail really is about is a seamless channel for the consumer. If you practice this, if you embed this, that is really where profitability comes. It's also where you're seeing the highest driver of consumer engagement, because now you're everywhere that I want to be and you're accessible to me. So in thinking about the digital native experience, as digital natives start to scale stores, it's really about their ability to acquire customers faster. That's what's leading to the profitability. To learn more, visit nextinretail.com. The only company I heard of 
that I could actually quote because I was at a dinner where the CEO of Estee Lauder spoke. I was impressed and pleasantly surprised to hear that they have a team that really looks and tracks non-transactional behavior uh, over time and puts a financial value to that, knowing that that does ultimately impact the transaction or the acquisition or whatever it is that they're tracking. So he had some amazing stories of that, which I thought was really impressive. But beyond Estee Lauder, I, I can't say I know enough or I've looked into it enough to know. I was encouraged to hear Shackman reference Estee Lauder, a client that I'd spent time with on the importance of measuring the impact of physical experience, not only in qualitative, but also quantitative terms. It seemed to me that if we can understand the market value of a Facebook ad, we should be able to do the same in terms of valuing a physical engagement with a customer. Shackman agrees and adds that the lack of such a measure puts experiential retail concepts at risk of being smothered by the status quo. So I do think there's a massive opportunity for an analytics company out there somewhere, maybe they're listening, to come up with some dashboard or some way to do this because large companies, you know, their financial dashboard doesn't spit out this data. And like, we're pretty simple creatures. What we see is what we understand and what we judge on. So if it's not on the paper, if all people see are the sales, they're not seeing the new customers you acquired or the rated sales or the dwell time in the store is 400% over the average dwell time. If people don't see or know that, it's not set up for success. So how should a brand approach the creation of an experience? At their essence, Sheckman says brands are much like people. We expect them to have character, personality, and a story. She describes a simple game she uses when shopping to understand a brand's story, or lack thereof. So the game is, when you walk out of the store, describe the experience like someone you met at a cocktail party. Like, what did that experience say to you, right? She was fun, and she was energetic, and she had a unique point of view, and she was really well-traveled. That could be Lululemon, right? So, to me... Whereas your description of Lululemon might be different, but like that's someone I'd want to hang out with again. So guess what? I'll go back to that store. I found this interesting in that out of all the shopping trips I make in a given week, I can't think of many retail brands that I'd want to hang out with. And that to me seemed a central problem. What good is experiential retail if most brands don't pass the cocktail party test anyway? Shouldn't brands fix that first? In what many viewed as a squandered opportunity, Macy's never attempted to convert an entire store over to Story's experiential retail model. Is it simply too ambitious an idea? Was the experiential revenue model simply not scalable? Sheckman declined to opine on her work with Macy's, but from her own perspective, she says, the sky's the limit. No, not at all. I mean, I think it could be a department store. I mean, I think... I'll tell you, I think the closest example and one of my retail heroes is Vittorio Radici from and what he did at Selfridges. I mean, you look at a store the size of Selfridges and the reinvention he did, what was it, 20 years ago? And it's you walk in that store and the energy to this day is palpable. With that in mind, I was interested to get her take on who else out there is doing it right. 
I half expected her to talk about some multi-million dollar flagship build or an elaborate store somewhere. I should have known better. For Shackman, experiences are like haute cuisine. Often, the best meals come in decidedly smaller portions. So the two that come to mind, one is a very recent experience when I was in New Zealand. And I don't know, I should like Google and see if there's an article on them. It's an ice cream store called Giapo, G-I-A-P-O. I'm mentioning that so people can Google it. But I was staying at this hotel and every time we would come home, there was this line out the door. And I was like, I, I thought it was a restaurant or a club. I had no idea what it was. It was an ice cream store. This is pre-COVID, right? So I say that because they only let in two groups at a time, period. And you go in, and if you and I were to go in together to get ice cream, we would stand there, and they would give us a platter that looked like a paint palette. And it would have a baby scoop of nine different types of ice cream. And we would taste them all, and then we would choose which we wanted to eat. And when we wanted a cone... We could get a 3D printed cone. We could get one that had a fresh donut on top of it. The experience was so, I mean, you want to talk about customer service and merchandising? They crushed both of them and it was magical. And so like, if you were to tell me I was going to spend 30 minutes in an ice cream store, like I would have thought you were crazy or that anything could be that special. It was mind blowing. So that would be one. And then the other one, again, I'm biased because I'm an investor and on the board is Camp and what Ben Kaufman is doing. And for those who don't know, what Camp is, is you walk into a thousand square foot kind of gift canteen. And then there's a secret door that leads to 8,000 square feet of experiential family retail. And it is magical. And What's impressive isn't just what he's built and what he's done with camp, but what he's doing now and how he quickly pivoted to doing online birthday parties and he's built a virtual camp in partnership with Walmart. So to me, he is the ultimate case study of retail becoming a media channel. And so frankly, there are the three takeaways, right? You have customer service, you have merchandising, and then kind of how can retail be media? Um, and he's monitoring. Just as Rachel was referencing Ben Kaufman, Matt Alexander's voice was echoing in my head. We've seen incredibly thoughtful approaches to it. My favorite being uh, Ben Kaufman and Camp in New York and elsewhere now, and how they approached an experiential concept and deployed it towards kids Um, and he's monetizing it right with like legitimate needle moving dollars that have much higher margins than certain product categories so you know that i think is worth looking at so that's exactly what we did i started camp in uh in the summer of 2018 at that time it was about 60 days after toys r us had declared bankruptcy i at that time had a year and a half year old son uh, living in New York City, looking around and realizing that uh, there isn't anywhere uh, to buy toys, but more importantly, there isn't anywhere to reliably go as a family on a regular basis. And that was really the inspiration behind camp was how can you create 
a ritualistic experience, sort of like getting a coffee at a Starbucks, that captured the hearts and minds of families uh, together as a unit, not just kids, because parents hate kids' play spaces. Um, but together as a family, how do you create a, a fun and interactive environment? Located on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue, Camp is not your usual toy store. It's also not unusual to hear people say Camp is the store that Toys R Us should have been. And yet, it's precisely that comparison to Toys R Us that highlights why Camp is deceivingly different. Yeah, we don't we don't even sell that many toys. Like only 25% of our revenue comes from the sale of toys. The business model of Camp has three main parts, uh, or at least it used to have three main parts. First, we sell merchandise. And we're a cross-category merch, uh, mer- merchandiser. We, we sell, like I said, toys, gifts, apparel, food, etc. Um, the second component of what we do is we have events in our stores and we sell tickets to those events. These could be things like magic shows, craft and activities for families to enjoy together, and our crowd favorite, which was date night drop-off, where you could drop your kid off at 6 p.m. and pick them up at 9. Um, that that were the, was the first two kind of in-store um, pieces of revenue. And the third is sponsorships where brands can sponsor our themed experiences. So camp our physical retail locations. We split our store into, into, into two, the front half of our store, it's about 20% of our store is permanently fixtured and, and kind of meant to look like an old school general store. And the back 80% is kind of a black box theater. We build uh, everything behind what we call our magic door as a rotating themed experience that changes about quarterly. And those themes are often sponsored by brands. So we have a uh, media part of our business, which is sponsorships. We have uh, ticketing and activity part of our business. And then we have the merchandise sales as well. I found the use of the word theater interesting. I wondered, did Kaufman view what he and his team do as being a theatrical process? Our team actually comes out of theater. Like our, our experience designers are all Broadway, uh, Broadway background folks who, you know, uh, Javier created the set for Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton and, and some, of, some of the biggest shows on Broadway. And, and, uh, and he now designs uh, family experience stores for us. So, yes, I'm completely cool with the, the theater reference. So if camp is creating theater... And theater is really just a physical form of media. Does Kaufman see camp as a media play? We view our largest asset as the fact that we have a audience that comes on a repeated basis and loves to hear the messages that we share. And if I think back to my BuzzFeed days, it was a similar thing, right? What do you, what does BuzzFeed have? It has an audience that comes on a repeatable basis that, that wants to hear the stories that we share. And that's a media business. Sure, we, we conduct transactions as well, and that's valuable. But the fact that our brand is standing behind another brand should actually have more value than the fact that we can sell a thingamajig for a 50-point margin. This focus on monetizing retail audiences was a point of passion for me. I felt for nearly three decades now that physical retail in particular was destined to become a supremely powerful and monetizable media channel. But there's another thing. Focusing on selling the idea of fun for families, as opposed to simply peddling toys for kids, creates a far more resilient and dynamic model for pivoting in times of disruption, something camp, like so many other retailers, had to do. 
so when when the covid stuff started to happen it was immediately clear that like okay we just can't wait any longer our stores are going to have zero revenue in the in the coming weeks we got to get our get our act together so um we started we started close to home so on march 15th it was my my younger son's uh first birthday uh and uh, the next day someone on our team said you know what about virtual birthdays and we uh, uh, we had our, our CTO look at our database, and we realized just in our camp customer database, there are 60 or 70 kids a day that celebrate their birthday. And at that point, for the foreseeable future, it wasn't clear when anyone would be together again to celebrate birthdays. So we started holding virtual birthdays. Um, they were very well attended. We've, we've, in the last three months, celebrated, I think, uh, thousands of kids' birthdays. Then we started selling sponsorships into digital birthdays and doing what we do, which is, you know, you build an audience, then you sell, you sell brand partnerships into it, and and so on. Um, and that's been a really fun thing for us to do. It like brings us joy every day at five p.m. to like see all of these families at home connecting with one another and like celebrating something. And uh, birthdays was the first thing we got off the ground. And then in early April, we knew camps were likely going to not be open um, and, and a digital summer camp would make a lot of sense. We didn't feel like we can do it really well on our own just because of budgets and things like that. So we looked for a partnership there. You know, almost every brand has a, a virtual summer camp right now. North Face has one, Amazon has one, et cetera. They all kind of amount to the same thing, which is here's, here's a booklet PDF that you could download of things to do with your family. That didn't feel uh, engaging enough for us as a brand. So we partnered with uh, an interactive video company called Echo uh, and Walmart to create a virtual summer camp uh, with 150 plus interactive video-based activities where you actually interact with the videos that are actually merchandised. So every activity has product against it that you could purchase with, with one click directly inside of the Walmart app. And yeah, it's been a it's been a crazy like evolution, just following, following the needs of the world through all of this. And yeah, it's been, been fun. So if experiential retail is about creating theater, about selling ideas and monetizing audiences, what does the creative process look like? Yeah, we, we write a story. Uh, that is, the, that is the, the way we design these experiences. You know, we have a, a linear path through our store. You know, you you open the magic door, and how do we set the stage? So, you know, for for cooking camp, we you walk through a set of fridges, and then you wind up in the farm, and you follow the evolution of food from farm. And like the first section of the store is a farm, and that what we do is we basically have this chart, and it's it's what is the story we're being told, like being told. It's like what's the narrative? So farm. That's the that's the story. What is the the interactive play moment? So in the farm, there was a giant silo that was a trampoline that the kids could play on. And then what is the merch that goes along with it? Okay, so in the farm, we'll do all animal based toys and animal based merch and so on. And from there, you go into sorting, sort the food that comes off the farm. And the interactive play moment is a conveyor belt that the kids can turn. And the merchandise that goes along with that is Harry Potter because sorting and Harry Potter go together. And then from there, it's transportation. You got to move the food from the sorting station to the grocery store. And that's all the cars and all the trucks and so on. And then you go to the grocery store. And in the grocery store, there's food-based stuff and so on. And you go to the freezer. And then you go to the home kitchen. And then you go to the restaurant. And then you go to the bakery. And so every section has a story. It has a play moment. And it has a product that goes along with it. That's the, that's the way we build these things out. 
Hearing Kaufman describe the creative process that Camp embarks on with each new theme, it strikes me just what a departure it is from the typical retail merchant mindset. Most retailers begin with trying to sell a product and work back to find some semblance of story. All too often, they lose the plot along the way. I asked Kaufman if there's just a fundamental industry misunderstanding about what experiential means. When people hear about entertainment-based retailers, they think about Chuck E. Cheese and think about like bowling alleys and lots of things that I think many of us would consider trash. And I, I think it's time for everyone to broaden the scope of what an entertainment-based retailer looks like and think about the entertainment being the going to the store, going to the place is the activity. That is the that is the theater, it is the show, it is the thing that you're that you're going after. And it doesn't need to be so like on the nose, like it's a it's a driving range, it's a kid's place, it's a thing. It it can be a brand and can be a venue that is driving ritualistic experience and ever evolving and, and ever interesting. And that's hopefully the the space that camp will will take up. The takeaways it seemed to me were first and foremost that experiential retail is not about building gimmicky, unsustainable sideshows. It's not about staging profitless pits of novelties or condescending to a new generation of consumers with selfie walls and VR headsets. It's not something by any means relegated to physical space. Experiential is as, and perhaps even more adaptable to digital than conventional retail. What is experiential retail then? It's a system of exposing consumers to brands and products that is flexible and channel agnostic depending on the shopper's needs. It's a retail system that's adaptable to diverse revenue streams and profit structures. Space can be subleased, products tested, brand awareness built, and data gleaned by brands eager to dip their toes in the physical world. Experiential retail is a design discipline powered by wellsprings of creative capital, a constant evolution of new and innovative experiences, products, and brands. It's a measurable and effective form of media for the purposes of customer acquisition, and it's not simply a channel for the distribution of ideas, but a shape-shifting platform for the distribution of experiential media to vast audiences both inside and outside of the physical store. That's experiential retail. And to me, it sounds perfectly sustainable, with or without a pandemic. If you've enjoyed this episode of Retail Reborn, created by the Business of Fashion and presented by Brookfield Properties, subscribe to the BOF podcast to receive all future episodes in our six-part series. Until next time, I'm Doug Stevens. Thank you.